This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, across the world, we have seen a surge in the politics and language of hate, which ignites and feeds off ethnic or religion-based majoritarianism, in which the majority somehow feels it is under threat or will soon be threatened by even a small minority and must therefore assert itself and make sure that minority remains or is put in its place, And it is often spoken out loud that this can be by violent means if necessary. And South Asia provides a particularly complex example of various hues of this majoritarianism. Joining me today is Pakistani-American writer Farhanaz Ispahani, a former journalist, a former member of Pakistan's parliament, and currently, among other things, a senior fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. Farhanaz, thank you for joining Thank you. And I'm joined also by Salil Tripathi, prolific author and journalist and member of the board of Penn International. Welcome as well, Salil. Good to see you. Thank you so much. Good good to see you. So Farhanaz, if I may start with you, you have just edited a new book, a volume of essays from HarperCollins in India titled Politics of Hate, Religious Majoritarianism in South Asia. The chapters, of course, span India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan and Bangladesh excellent depth and detail on how the politics of hate fuels majoritarianism, mobilizing the votes of the majority by bashing the minority. So can we start with Pakistan? What should we be worried about in Pakistan, which is in a state of instability at the moment? Pakistan, of course, has been the worst among religious majoritarian states in South Asia. What we're seeing in Bangladesh or India, you're all late to the game. Pakistan, very soon after partition, started on this Islamization route. And today, whether it's the thought of the average person, whether it's the religious parties, whether it is the politicians themselves, the parts of the Pakistani army, it's a very deep-set issue. The hatred of the other And um, today you're seeing this nuclear-armed Pakistan with an economy in free fall. And some would say the economy has collapsed, much like Sri Lanka's had. So it's a very dangerous time right now. You have people who are armed, who are militant, who have an Islamist worldview, and the institutions are crumbling and there's no money to pay the salaries of those who would guard the state and its people. Salil, to come to you, first of all, if you could just respond to that. And also, you have written and spoken extensively, particularly on Bangladesh and India. And I would like to ask you about Bangladesh, your view on the radicalization of politics in Bangladesh. Yeah, I don't obviously follow Pakistan very closely, but everything that uh, Farhana just said sounds very uh, dangerous, precarious. It sounds as though the liberal secular voice in the country is being stifled, whether they're speaking about women's rights, about LGBT rights, um, wherever it is, it's a, there is a this majoritarian trend to push them back. And that's definitely a, a very sad aspect. And I feel sorry for the liberal Pakistanis who have to live through that. I mean, that goes without saying. Bangladesh is very interesting because, you know, when Farana spoke about how gradually the Islamism became more entrenched, it was the trajectory was similar in Bangladesh. Because it started out in 1971 as a secular nation with a very 
for its time, a very progressive constitution that Dr. Kamal Hussain and others had worked on. But once the Mujib government was removed through that very bloody coup that took place in 1975, and after that, the series of governments that came progressively Islamicized the country. And by Islamicization, I simply mean making it more fundamentalist. It was always Bengali and Muslim, and suddenly the Muslim part became important. A small example was that the independence movement slogan was Joy Bangla, which is in Bengali for victory to Bengal. And suddenly people started saying Bangladesh Zindabad, which is a Hindi version of the same that, you know, long live Bangladesh. Nothing wrong with saying Bangladesh Zindabad, but it was replacing the Bengali identity with another identity. And then after that, the, the attacks have continued relentlessly on minorities, again on LGBT rights and so on. Now, since off late, there has been a Awami League is back in power, but substantively things haven't changed much. And, and that's the problem uh, in terms of how hate gets propagated. And I mean, India, what does one say? You know, there was this, uh, I think it was Fahmida Riyaz who wrote that famous poem, Tum Bilkul Ham Jaise Nikle. I think that was what, which means you have just turned out like us. And this was soon after the destruction of Babri Masjid in 1992. And it basically was, you know, the liberal Pakistani used to look up to India for its democratic roots and traditions. And now the current government is trying very hard to prove Jinnah right, that, you know, if you're Muslim, you can't be safe in India. And that's the government is trying very hard to prove that. The government, the Indian government seems to be trying very hard to prove that. Right. So I'm glad you were brought up. I was going to ask you both this later, and but I'm glad you brought it up about the liberal secularists and so forth in India, Pakistan, etc., the space shrinking. Now, <clears throat> the diversity within India, much like in America, means that there is some pushback. There remains a very, a very active opposition, a raucous democratic tradition still, though we know that space is shrinking. But within Hinduism, just as within Christianity, there is also pluralism, a diversity of views. Will that ensure that the ideology of this sort of majoritarianism will be contested? Salil, if you could go first with that, then I'll put the same question to Faranaz, if I may, later. I think it is being contested. I would never say that there is no liberal opposition to what's going on in India. It's just that the levers of the state and the co-optation of the media, of judiciary, of the bureaucracy, and even of the defense forces is so strong. And the chorus that you have through certainly online media, but also in terms of people who march. I was just seeing earlier this morning a video of march in Maharashtra, the Western state, of hundreds or maybe thousands of people marching with saffron flag calling for an economic boycott of Muslims. Now, this is very problematic. And this feeds that environment of hate. Now, you could always say that India is a free country. You can march and do what you want. But it has always been a free country with limits. And the government sees nothing wrong in letting these marches go on. But if there are other kinds of marches that take place, then they tend to get stopped. Similarly, you know, hate speech by the so-called saffron brigade that you see in uh, in India, you know, calling for literally calling for genocide uh, by these robed sadhus and sadhu is the word for priest and sadhu is uh, priestesses. Uh, you do see those uh, speeches on YouTube and being shared. Nothing happens, but a stand-up comedian who speaks up and pokes a little bit of fun at the government or at someone with power gets jailed. In one case, a Muslim stand-up comedian was jailed before he had even started speaking because of the assumption by somebody that he might say something critical of Hinduism. So in that environment, the whenever some secular liberal people do speak out, they're immediately dismissed as communists, Marxist sympathizers, lapsed Hindus, 
So they they are denied the space of speaking from the Hindu faith. The very fact that Gandhi was a Hindu and deeply secular at one level, that kind of voice is just ridiculous. You know, not belonging within the dominant Hindu voice that you hear now. Uh, Farhanas, could you talk a little bit about that as well in the Pakistan context? Not just Pakistan. I would say the reason I wrote this book is the similarities today between Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. These were very different countries, as Salil had talked about. Pakistanis, progressive Pakistanis, used to look up to India and we used to look at the constitution and we used to look at the fact that the word secular existed there. And all of these things that we were aspiring to. Today, we are looking at the situation and whether it is the Hindu monks or in Pakistan, it is the Islamists and the mullahs, whether it's the Buddhist monks and whether in Bangladesh, Hafazat uh, and all of these movements, right? It's all the same thing. But what has changed now is that you have politicians, politicians working with and using and the religious card are using them as well. Look back to how Saudi Arabia's, the pact between Ibn Wahhab and Ibn Salt, church and state being one. What we have always worked towards a democratic framework is the separation of church and state. Today, this is the biggest danger that I see. Look at India. I mean, I think possibly every single religious, belief system belongs in India, probably more than in any country in the world. So why all of a sudden this fear, this fear of Muslims and Christians, this fear of love jihad, this fear of Muslims spreading COVID, these hate groups and trolling on the media, the CAA law, all of these things have come about because the religious right and the political right have come together, even though they're the majority, to make the majority feel they're under threat from the minority. And you know, there's an old British saying, let the majority have its way, but let the minority have its say. And what we are seeing all over South Asia today is the minority is not being allowed to have its say, is not being given democratic rights and freedoms and all of the things that a democratic polity allows for. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. In a previous conversation, Farhanaz, you had also mentioned what you call the absence of equal citizenship. And this applies across the region. Could you explain that term and the implications of it? The absence of equal citizenship is every single person in a country should have the same rights under the law and also in textbooks, in curriculums, in the social fabric, on the media. But what we see more and more is the otherization of the minority leads to a very unequal citizenship. In Pakistan, for example, the Ahmadi Muslims were declared non-Muslims. So you've declared a whole Muslim sect non-Muslim. 
Therefore, those people cannot say their prayers the way they want. They cannot vote the way they want. They cannot even call their mosques masjids. So this is really what happens when you start stripping people of their equal rights under the law. Salil, would you care to sort of add to that? Yeah, so to some extent that is happening uh, even in India with regard to Hindus and Muslims. So for example, um, if Muslims want to build a new mosque, it becomes harder. Their existing mosques are under threat for encroachment and sometimes destroyed. If they want to pray in the open park or public, people stop them from doing it. If Muslim girls and women want to wear the headscarf and attend classrooms, they are not being allowed to enter. If you're a Muslim and you want to rent property, it's very hard to do so because people will come up with an excuse saying, oh, we, we don't want meat to be cooked in our building society. And uh, uh, that tends to happen to them. Uh, if you're with a Muslim name applying for jobs, it's hard. One of the interesting things, I'm writing a book about Gujarat and Gujaratis. And one of the interesting things I found in my research is that you have a lot of young Muslims who have become entrepreneurial or professional, lawyers and uh, doctors and accountants. And I said, don't you want a corporate career? And then one of them laughed. He said, but who will read our resume? So it's come to that stage. So they've become entrepreneurial because they're being compelled to do so. And it, it's a very common trait that tends to happen. And uh, Faranath is absolutely right. You know how, how Milosevic did it in Serbia, which is to make the powerful feel that they are being persecuted because then they become their own army. And I think there is a bit of that going on. I mean, thankful it is not on a scale at which it can be devastating, but I don't have, I don't have a very good prognosis of where we are headed. The interesting thing, I'll jump in just to make the Sri Lanka point, which is a little different to the Pakistan and uh, the Indian example is, it's not even creating fear in the majority of the minority. It's telling the minority, we are the majority and our way is right. Accept that. Don't question that. And you can be here. So it's even more, I, I would say, in your face. It's even more um, brutal in a way. Um, so if you're, there are gradations all over South Asia, just like there are gradations all over the world. But why do we care about South Asia? It's 2 billion people. It's an important part of the world. Some of it is sinking and some is swimming to the top. So it's a very, I would say, a part of the world that more people need to really pay attention to these issues. They're not just social issues. These are issues that determine the strength and longevity of nations. And democracy is in danger. So with these forces um, at play, Salil, you, you mentioned the direction in which we are, we are heading in South Asia. Will these forces eventually you know, keep triggering more conflict, even perhaps the sort of separatism that we have seen? And I have to bring, uh, you know, we, have, we chatted the other day about Myanmar briefly. And you know, it has racked with internal in state of civil war, in internal ethnic and religion-based conflict. You know, the Chins, largely Christian, Kachin, a lot of Christians, Rohingya, we saw what happened with that. It's very much for in ferment and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Are we, uh, is South Asia potentially headed in the direction of more conflict and even perhaps separatism? But I mean, the Khalistan, of course, there were other factors at play, but the Khalistan uh, example does also come to mind. 
I think if you look at it purely from the perspective of India, the reason India managed to remain that so-called, you know, what John Kenneth Galbraith called it, the functional anarchy, where the interesting word was not anarchy, but the functional, the fact that it worked, that was the important part. I mean, if that's the way we want to look at it, then I think there was an unwritten pact about the space given to the minorities, the space given to linguistic minority states to assert their identity. Majoritarianism is a danger. When you try to convert a country into vegetarian, when you try to convert a country into Hindi speaking, when you try to convert a country into Hindu, and also one form of Hinduism, because you know Hinduism has... As you were saying, you know, the Charvaka actually talks about atheism. And here they want to create one God, Ram, and build everything around that. When you try to impose that, there are risks and dangers. And the imagination boggles at the thought of what that kind of strife might look if it ever turns violent. I just hope not. There are also other tendencies. You know, Northern Indian states, the Hindi-speaking states are more populous. The situation of women is much worse there. The literacy is much lower. They tend to come to southern India for jobs, to Maharashtra, to Kerala, Karnataka, and Tamil Nadu, and so on. That itself changes and causes its own ferment. So it's going to remain in a flux. I mean, I just, I don't want to make predictions which are dire. Right. Okay. One last quick question, Salil, and I'll give you the last word, of course, Farnas. On the media, the media amplifies divisions. How dangerous is that? How dangerous is the role of the media right now? If your plurality of voices, it's not a problem. I think what's happening in India increasingly is that the, a one kind of voice comes out. Yes, there are 25 channels, but they're saying essentially the same message. There was one channel, NDTV, which was slightly different, but that is also now bought over by a businessman close to the prime minister. Now, in that kind of a situation, that becomes quite difficult. Similarly, with print media, which fewer and fewer people read. So what you're left with, is there are independent journalists but they write for small portals and websites and the uh, appeal tends to be limited. So that is a danger for India. And that's why it, ranking keeps falling. You know, it's now at 142, the Reporters from Frontier Index, if you look at it, it's fallen from 138 to 140 to 141. You know, it used to be freedom of speech in India used to be the jewel. These were the words of Edward Beher, the former Newsweek editor. He used to say that say, jewel, don't ever give it up. And to go from the top 10 or 20 to 142, I mean, that's a steep fall. Steve Paul, yes. Farhanaz, last word from you on any of these points, the media, etc. The media, as a former journalist, I have to say, the worst combination is religion, um, the media, and politicians all working together and all with the same cause. Um, as Salil just talked about in India, about television, um, that's the same issue all over South Asia, all over the world now. But also social media, we have to remember, troll farms. Um, governments are running these troll farms which are attacking individuals, which are attacking political parties, which are leading to physical lynchings and other terrible realities. And organizations are running these troll farms, these troll armies, and so are individuals. So it's become so specialized now on social media, the targeting, and that is terrifying. Paranaz Ispahani, Salil Tripathi, thank you very much for joining me today on Asian Insider. Pleasure always to hear from you. Thank you so much, Nirmal. Thank you, Paranaz. Lovely meeting you, although remotely here. Thank you. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. 
That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.